Hello, fine people. It is Chance. We are dropping one more bonus episode that was formerly Patreon exclusive here in the main feed before we make a triumphant return next week with movies hinging on movie theaters. We're excited for that category. But in the meantime, wanted you to enjoy uh, the Pelican Brief, um, which was a Patreon episode that we did back in January, I think. If you want to hear more episodes like this, Patreon is just three bucks a month for some two bonus shows a month. Um, and also wanted to remind you that our next watch party is on the surfing slash bank robbing crossover classic Point Break. It is uh, this Sunday, May 23rd at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be a ball. So if you would like the link for that, um, you can hit us up on Instagram or Twitter, or you can send an email to berealguys at gmail.com. And uh, if you show up, I will provide the dead president's mask. All right, enjoy the show. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal Or measure them all by box office appeal But for once in your life Be real! Welcome one and all to the Be Real Patreon. How's the air back here behind the old paywall? My name's Chance. I'm Noah Ballard. It smells rarefied to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's unvarnished, unsanitized. You know, out there in the main feed, you, you don't know what we really think about the most important subjects in life, like 1993's The Pelican Brief. But back here, we're going to let it fly. Too hot. For the forthcoming Bakula pod, I'm gonna comes say our it. take on the Pelican Brief. That's right. Um, so, since it's only the second episode, we'll keep thanking you. We'll thank you every time. We really appreciate your support and hope you're enjoying these early episodes. Let us know if there's any, uh, how the Patreon is treating you, basically. Um, Special shout out, too, to Matthew Margata and Gunter Volker for hanging out with us while we watched this podcast yeah this was uh for our our watch party so giving up three hours and 10 (laughs) minutes of their time to watch the pelican brief i'm just kidding it's only two hours and 20 minutes 220 um which is about twice as long as home alone and santa claus i think right we should Um, definitely factor that in when we're picking the watch party movies I know it's I'm I'm taking ownership of that. I didn't think that the Pelican Brief was that long until the I moment knew. I fired it up on HBO Max I knew the and saw whole the time. <laughs> the end timestamp there. So this movie came out back when Grisham was just like at his peak. I mean, he would write it and Hollywood would make it. It's like a year after the firm, uh year before the client. I think Time to Kill is maybe two years later. I mean, a hot streak of hot streaks. Play the hits, Johnny. Yes. And it definitely has the feel very quickly of kind of a like a, a blank check kind of production. Oh, yeah. I think, what's the budget on It's this like you puppy? need a thousand extras in this carnival scene. Cool. We'll get them for you. The $45 million is a lot of money for... For this movie. the Pelican Brief. 
the only the only reason I want to push back on that is because we have done the firm on this show, and that is an even blanker check, I think, because Sidney Pollock make two forty five. Like, even a couple more movie stars, they go to the Cayman Islands. So somehow yeah. this one feels just a little more reeled in, but whew, not, not, a lot of ex- not a lot of expense spared. But pretty, but like, that's fine, I think, to be part of. Like, you know very quickly, both in this one and the firm, that you're like, in good, parenthetically rich hands. <laughs> There was a moment like halfway into the movie before we were really like assessing whether we liked it or not, where Pakula was doing camera tricks and there was sort of like this surreptitious surprise where Stanley Tucci's playing an assassin and Margata commented, you know, I really like movies and this is the kind of movie that's going to make you say shit like that because it's just got endless actors and a, a skilled director and... There's a benchmark of quality there. From the best-selling thriller by John Grisham, author of The Firm and The Client. From Alan J. Pakula, director of All the President's Men and Presumed Innocent. Julia Roberts, Denzel Washington. The Supreme Court of the United States are ultimate symbol of law and order. But in a single night, two of its justices will be brutally assassinated. A thousand miles away in New Orleans, a lone law student has pieced together who did the killings and why, and created a document that has become known in the corridors of power as the Pelican Brief. Now she has become a target, and the only person she can trust is an investigative journalist. Everyone I've told about the brief is dead. If this thing reaches as deep and goes as high as we think it does, these men will do anything not to be exposed. A law student uncovers a conspiracy, putting herself and others in danger. Okay. That, to me, seems like too narrow in scope what this movie's about. This movie is about the assassination of two Supreme Court justices and the fallout of why were they assassinated and what's the political uh, strategy to get what you want. Based on what you just said, maybe it could be a good moment to mention Alan J. Pakula, who is the director and the wrote the screenplay for this movie we're doing an upcoming category on the movies of pakula who's best known for cementing the voice of the paranoid 70s thriller with movies like clute and parallax view which we're going to watch and also all the president's men which we've which we've already reviewed on this show um and yeah this is sort of like it's funny because Sidney Pollack directed The Firm, right? And one of his best-known movies from the 70s is Three Days of the Condor. There is this kind of thing in the 90s where it's like, if you were part of that new Hollywood sort of fringe, um, politically in-touch wave, by the time you were 20 years older and the the movie machine in the 90s was like a little more solidified, taking a little fewer chances, they like handed you a book with some of those undertones, but that was not nearly so subversive. For sure. You know, and I think, too, there's also the idea of the 
the kind of IP that was being developed at this time. And you talked about Grisham's back-to-back-to-back successes. So I think pairing a, like an, a director who's known for these sort of savvy political thrillers with a guy who has the bestseller bona fides, you know, I mean, there is something subversive and controversial about the material here. Um, but there's also something so ridiculous about how simple the politics are in a movie like this as to not be as influential a movie as like Parallax View or All the President's Men. Right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I want to talk a little later about um, whether or not it actually is a good conspiracy movie. The other part of the two-hander that we have to mention is that Denzel Washington plays Gray Grantham, a character name from my dreams. He's a reporter for the not Washington Post, um, who gets a call from uh, somebody who's trying to inform on the on the um, the assassination. So you kind of get Gray and Darby putting the pieces together from opposing sides or just parallel tracks, and then coming together to be like, "Wait, we actually did hit. We did hit on why these two were murdered." Right, and you're also sort of piecing together the overarching conspiracy that is you know sort of behind the story here like what actually happened to these two guys which i think it does a little bit of of work organizing the the tension there's a lot of tension in this movie i feel like not to spoil it too early but i liked it more than maybe the other people we were watching with um but you yeah. might have liked it more than me too what are the so uh, for me, the tension comes from mostly in the first half where there are like all these kind of third and fourth characters being introduced. Like um, uh, John Hurd plays an FBI lackey. Um, and then Stanley Tucci is this like mysterious international terrorist named Kamel, who's we see him kill the two judges. And you don't know who these people are and you don't know how dispensable they are. So it's some of the violence that crops up around them that is actually sort of surprising. For sure. You know, and then you call, you also have the uh, acting prowess of uh, like Sam Shepard as the yeah. boozy, womanizing, uh, what, law professor who's sleeping with Julia Roberts. She's 24. He His 18 minutes are kind, <laughs> His 18 minutes are kind of... Um, incongruous how interesting and character oriented they are like they go out to dinner um and he apparently it's like just her who's been keeping him sober and he kind of has this like you know really sad drunken failure things that he keeps but he wears a grin the whole time about like i think i'm too drunk to write this book about the deceased justice rosenberg even though i'm the one who should do it. And that's like a level of characterization that I would argue is not applied to anyone else in the film, most especially the stars. Yes. Not a ton of them have demons or even family or personal lives, really. Uh, It's very strange how intimate all the characters are with each other, but not with like anyone beyond. Yeah. It's, I think it hits a unfortunate note for me in that it's so little of a character study that it becomes kind of pure procedural, but then it's also not 
unlike, say, All the President's Men, which I think is one of the great American procedurals, it never becomes so detail-oriented that you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm supposed to pay attention to procedure and the very, you know, minute nature of the journalistic job. Um, it's, it's a, one of the curious things is that, so you don't have to tell me whether Denzel's character has a lady friend. I don't care. But it would be nice to know... A friend of any kind. A friend of any kind, or is is journalism his friend? Like, we just don't... You, he doesn't get that scene that Redford gets where he calls everyone and the camera doesn't move from him. Or the scene that uh, that Hoffman gets where he kind of bullies his way into that office in Florida. Um, he doesn't get any great right. journalism scenes. He gets to introduce himself a lot, and then... Yeah, the, he kind of like does montages of reporting. But yeah, he's never really like, I mean, other than when he's checking his facts and like the triumphant epilogue to this, uh, he's never really yeah, journalisting that hard. No. And what does it, I'm going to, this may seem a little picky, but what does it matter that Darby Shaw is a law student? Zero uh, percent. Other than she was so focused on the weird cases that her professor and his mentor, one of the slain Supreme court justices uh, that she was able to find this conspiracy. But then the movie kind of undoes that too, by blaming it on her watching too much PBS, right? Which has absolutely nothing to do with the connection to the professor. And then becomes more about, I would say the movie's biggest misstep is introducing like the overarching unseen villain of Matisse. <laughs> yeah. Who's an oil baron who is not in the movie. Oil baron, not in the movie. Um, who's willing to do anything to get rich and uh, oil rig this place in the Louisiana somewhere. Right. But I want to know when it happened that, everybody got together because she has this great monologue about like the reason that it's the Pelican brief is because it all comes down to this ruling about preserved land where Pelicans live. But she also names about like five other waterfowl. True. Uh, Herons. So why? Yeah. Why is it? Why isn't it the Heron brief? Yeah. Why isn't it the big dump dunk? (laughs) Big dump duck brief. And then the gulls show up. Um, yeah. Throw a wave to the lighthouse keeper's kid brief. Right. Um, it's a great question. Pelican's just a shiny bird, man. It's a But show everyone, bird. it's ubiquitously known as the Pelican brief, even by people who have called it that, who have never met or communicated with each other. Like all the people playing chess here know of this MacGuffin as the Pelican brief, but it's, it's unclear why they've decided it's called that you had a good nitpick on the chat when we were talking about this just about well it's not a nitpick it's just something you noticed but the idea that the movie much like the pelican brief just shoves these phrases at you so aggressively that you're like you know all the law firms what's yeah. the one white and blazevich white and blazevich incredible Which, in the most the ultimate surplus casting, Anthony Heald, who plays uh, Dr. Chilton in 
Silence of the Lambs and just is and sort of this movie too. Piece of shit. <laughs> he just like answers a phone at White and Blazevich, and you're like, I, you know, I already got Tony Goldwyn as the chief of staff in the White House, and I got the invisible Matisse. Like, I don't need the guy that Hannibal Lecter justifiably eats to let me know that the <laughs> law firm is bad. Funny thing, I was watching a clip from The Client, which I think comes out the next year, the with Susan Sarandon and Tommy Lee Jones, and Anthony Heald is one of Tommy Lee Jones's like shitty associates. Incredible. What a, what a run for him. Oh my god. Sometimes um, when there's people like that who have been cast over and over and over again in cinema, like I wonder if it affects their personal lives. You know, like, do they have trouble making new friends because, like, they're known as, like, the smarm guy? Maybe. I don't know. We should get that guy on the program. I bet Anthony Heald would do an interview. Yeah, what is he doing? Other than, like, being the perp in, like, a procedural CBS drama or something. Right. You know, my favorite bad guy role from him is in the the parrot movie Polly, where he plays... (laughs) You want to guess who he plays? The bad guy? The evil scientist who doesn't want to reveal that Polly can talk. <laughs> Perfect. Clips his fucking wings. What? Um, yeah. Okay, let's focus on the good for a second, though. Um, Stanley Tucci is very interestingly cast in this movie. I don't think I've ever seen a Tucci performance like this. No. It's like early, young, but still sexy Stanley Tucci who... His arms are wiry got, and uh, jacked wiry and jacked like not like bulbous but 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 he's got like a lean strength to him and then there's like something unbelievably weird about the shot where he like in the same shot strangles to death in one quick tug this supreme court justice who's at like a porno movie theater yeah but then like while he's doing it, he like doesn't break eye contact with the pornographic movie he's watching. Like he's multitasking in this like sinister and sexual way. It's very weird, but very good. So the best moments of directing, a few that are pretty inspired, I think, are when John Hurd, who plays the dad in Home Alone, is gonna finally go meet up with Darby Shaw, Julie Roberts. And he's like got this scene where he's kind of like, it's the night before and he's showering and he's told her what he weighs and he's kind of like, you know, fondling his belly in the mirror and being like, I'm going to take this off. And you're like, this is going on a while. What is happening? Yeah, what is the shot? Yeah. (laughs) And then Tucci has just been like hanging out behind the mirror. That's great shit. Um, But the one that really wins it for me is, um, well, I don't know if I want to spoil it because it's a big surprise. There's a... There's a scene about halfway through where someone is killed in a crowd of people assassinated. Oh, the river walk scene. And Pakula pulls out the camera straight up with the corpse as the center point, And you just see like people, I don't know, it's like one of those like ma- iron filing magnet sculptures where like everybody's yes, just kind of running away from the center point as he gets further and further. It's an awesome shot. It's great. Yeah, that whole sequence is really impressive. How he manipulates uh, a lot of extras in that way and then also have something very interesting in the foreground. Uh, Yeah, it's really good. I think some of it goes a little overboard 
you know, I mean, Pakula shoots a, you know, a parking garage as well as anybody. We know from all the president's men. But this one gets like a little silly, you know, in that, I mean, it's almost like Seinfeldian of the fact that they like just can't find an exit. Sure. (laughs) And like we see no one. It's like the middle of the day in this parking lot in downtown New Orleans or D.C. or wherever they are at that point, and they can't find a person. Right. With 500 cars in the garage. Yeah, but there's no spots right. unclaimed. It was a great point that you made. Um, Yeah, when you get to a scene like that, it's just... I don't know how to describe it. You're just in like a 90s middle-brow kind of action space. And that's not Pakula. He's right. always like weirder than that. Um, and you can see it in the sound choices too. There's a scene after after Sam Shepard gets blown up where Darby kind of like accidentally wanders into the French Quarter. And yes, you could ask, as Margotta did, like, why did she go there? But she's in a complete daze and has been like lied to by these people impersonating cops. And um, the sound design is fascinating. She's wandering in and out of... Um, like jazz and pop and country and like hair metal um, and the Horner score you love. The score is good. James Horner's a, a master, if like a little cheesy at times and definitely got pretty lazy at the end of his career. Rest in peace. He died in like a helicopter crash a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yikes. Anyway, But this one, I mean, he's totally happy to have his score be intentionally dissonant with the actual music that's on screen, which is a cool choice. And especially a cool choice uh, in that Riverwalk scene as well. Um, But Horner's got that, like one of my favorite uh, movie uh, music tropes is when they just like throw a piano down a flight of stairs. Uh, I think I described it as because he did the soundtrack for uh, Titanic uh, pushing he used it to great effect of the sound of what it sounds like a piano like falling down the side of a titanic right um Um, but he learned it here (laughs) (laughs) and then sometimes it sounds like he's bringing it back up yeah he just has like a a rope and he pulls it back up the side of the titanic Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's cool um okay i gotta come i gotta come down a little harder here as we as we close out um I Denzel Washington is my I think my favorite actor. Um certainly one of my ever. He might be my favorite. Um Living or Dead. Living or Dead? No, I gotta go Buster Keaton, then Denzel. (laughs) I have never heard you offer any affection for Buster Keaton. I've never once mentioned Buster Keaton on the show. Um not as a slight. Uh Anyway, I love Denzel Washington. I think I've seen 90% of his movies. Um, this is not an interesting performance from him. And it's very weird to have Denzel not be interesting. I mean, he makes like shitty crime movies. Parenthetically, watch The Little Things with us on HBO in a couple of weeks. He, <laughs> he makes bad movies interesting all the time. But he's doing something in this one where, where Gunter was like, all he does is stare and whisper and stare and whisper. And why, why is his charisma stripped out of this movie? He never does that. It's disappointing that he doesn't have 
a scene where he's like tosses a bunch of papers off like Lithgow's desk and is like, they're killing people or something. Right. It's the Pelicans. It's Matisse. I mean, it's not that unconventional of a movie that you couldn't give me that conventional grandstanding from Denzel. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, you need to show a little... I mean, I don't mind the whispering and dead stare. I think it is pretty effective in certain moments in this. But you're you're right that he doesn't show a ton of his usual range in this one. Uh, and Julia Roberts is also pretty, like, closed-mouthed in this as well. Yeah, I don't like the... the her in the first five minutes it's sort of hokey when she argues with the professor that she's sleeping with about the nature of, you know, being ethical when it comes to constitutional law, but she's way better in the first 10 minutes where she, you know, where her dynamic is kind of compromised, right? She's trying to learn, but she's the one who has the ability to actually do stuff because he's drunk, but he has the power, but everybody's underestimating her. And as soon as that car bomb goes off, she's kind of just like, Rattled she never recovers. Two hours, which I, I <laughs> right. yeah. Listen to sure, what I'm it makes saying. Sense of in she's... human psychology, right? But I yeah, there definitely should have been more. I don't know, oomph. Yeah, or just personality, or something, or like just a want to prove herself. Right, and I'm not saying either that this movie needed to have Denzel and Julia Roberts get together in a romantic way. But the fact that we you never really question that, I think, is a mistake. So here I went back because I had heard I, for, I'd always remembered that they don't get together in this movie, and I'd always felt like it was sort of like a racist kind of thirty five years later Sydney like Hollywood won't let Sidney Poitier be with the the white female lead kind of thing. Turns out it was Denzel who didn't. That scene's supposed to be in there, and Denzel was like, no, because basically came out and said that black women are my fan base and would lo- they would probably look upon it as a betrayal. I'm not going to do it, which is fascinating. Julia was like, of course I wanted to do it. It's Denzel Washington. Um, would, so that's wild. But even like the absence of that scene, as you said, doesn't, they could like flirt. There could be like a moment where like two of the great, you know, intense romantic on-screen figures of post-1990 could you know exchange looks right it's not a betrayal to exchange looks and i think my big problem with this movie is that i mean maybe it's the same as yours but the beginning starts so promisingly with real like character work and nuance but then ultimately, I don't know if the conspiracy itself like makes a ton of sense. You know, if you take a movie like Michael Clayton or something like that makes sense. Big company is trying to get uh, or even the firm, you know, big companies trying to not have a piece of information shared about them uh, so they can keep making money. But this is so obscure. The idea that this you know, uh, Warren Buffett or Elon Musk has uh, hired an assassin to kill two Supreme Court justices because, A, he feels like he has influence with who the president picks for the next two seats, and B, he knows that in three legal failures or something or three legal moves on the chessboard of his trying to get this oil thing built in a preserved area, uh, 
that it will go to the Supreme Court. It's just such like seven dimensional chess that it, it, I don't know that it makes sense to me to justify the assassination of these two people. I'm going to come at it a different way, but maybe we end up in the same place. Um, it's just, it's not a good movie conspiracy because you don't feel that you're moving through something surprising or compromising or convicting. I think Michael Clayton is a great comp, which uh, is forever such an interesting movie because Michael Clayton is a pawn in the thing. And there has to be that moment in a good conspiracy movie halfway through or two thirds of the way through where the character kind of gets fallible galaxy brain for a moment where you don't know who you are anymore or it seems like you're completely fucked or the people you thought were your friends are not or the small compromises you thought you made were actually cardinal sins and this movie is too as seven-dimensional chess as it is it's also too straightforward if the only if the only people conspire the camps are too divided if the only people conspiring are the bad guy from ghost knockoff reagan stanley tucci and a bunch of like nondescript goons um, excuse me i believe his name is knockoff mitt romney he's doing a reagan voice though um (laughs) It just doesn't feel like any of the film gets on our protagonists and it doesn't feel like we're learning about the conspiracy at the same time as the protagonist because you know what? We're not. We it's it happened to us MacGuffin style where they found out about it in the first 5 minutes and we just don't learn right. about it till halfway through. So like that's not a good conspiracy movie. It's not I want to give credit to Gunter. His big criticism was he feels like Pakula is not trying. And in one way I would push back on that because it's got the shots, it's got the production value. I think I think he is. But there is that other way in which like certain scenes just feel like they're leaning on the source material as a crutch. Like that that parking garage scene where we like made fun of them because the there's a car bomb in the car and there's that like non-suspenseful suspense where like Denzel's going to start the car it's, it's a simple thing but like that's a well-directed scene that doesn't have a good idea behind it and that does right. feel like a phone in cuz they're not going to blow up what are you talking about they're not going to blow up i also thought the shot too where like the assassin sees their reflection in like the back of the uh, side mirror was like pretty cheesy. Yeah, that whole sequence is is misguided. Um, but I think ultimately for me, I think it's still a good good. Wow. I I enjoyed watching it. I think it's fundamentally well made in just the wealth of maybe over underutilized talent, but talent nonetheless. Uh, and definitely like a, you know, sort of an artifact from that mid nineties, you know, these who are who the stars are, and this is the kind of adult cinema we're making kind of way. Um, but yeah, I think it's good. Good. I think it's a good, bad. I think that the, it was a good, bad. Yes. I think that the quality and to be generous, the implied quality shines through in a lot of situations. <laughs> No, I was making lewd gestures about. No, I, this is a flight in my eyes. 
Oh, what I What did you see. think I was doing? Oh, I don't know. I thought it was some... Blowjob stuff? Seven-dimensional jerk-off motion. <laughs> <laughs> this stays in. This is the Patreon. Um, the, yeah, there's a lot of... There's a lot, a lot of implied quality, I think. Um, but, like, Margata said, I like movies. Yeah, I get it. Um, I've, I'm on the record as enjoying movies. Um, but... Yeah, it's just too long for a movie. That, oh, it's definitely too long. Well, listen, and I'm I'll, I can be patient too. It's too long for a movie that develops like almost completely in a straight line, and also where we are doesn't matter. Like as as bloated as the firm gets, like the the part that you take out of the firm is like the middle twenty five minutes. It's not when they go to the Caymans and there's this whole thing with um, Gene Hackman Sunny and, Caps. and Gene Triplehorn and Sunny Caps. And like there, it's more like set piece oriented in terms of suspense. And this one is like, I don't know, you could take out any one of these like links in the chain. And I think the result would be the same. It doesn't, it's not very watchable in my opinion. I'm going good, bad. Uh, I think that's fair. I also think there's a case to be made for, Bad, bad good. good. Sure. I could see that. Had I been feeling a little worse for wear today, I, I might have gone that way, but I'm sticking with good good. Uh Janet Maslin from The Times. I wanted to share this this line with you. The Pelican Brief is best watched as a celebration of liquid brown eyes and serious star quality. And that's what I, I look for on a Sunday afternoon when we pop a movie on the old VCR called HBO Max. There you go. Her next line, but they don't tie into character. <laughs> <laughs> nice job, I feel Janet. like I know where this is going. Um, no, what is your favorite uh, Grisham movie adaptation? I really like The Firm. Okay. What are the crews doing? Handsprings in Memphis. Handsprings in Memphis. Pumped, I just love how pumped he is when he like opens the envelope, or doesn't have to open the envelope. No, no, no. When he gets the initial offer for the, and he like doesn't need to know what the salary is. Oh right, <laughs> you just um, like salary non-reveal scenes. Rainmaker's pretty good. Uh, Danny DeVito and Matt Damon. Coppola, for sure. My favorite, and this is maybe a bad opinion, my favorite has always been Runaway Jury. Get out of here. (laughs) You're losing me, my jury. (laughs) That movie is quintessential bad good. Uh, If not a little bad, bad. They never adapted King of Torts. What do you suppose that's about? Isn't Four Christmases a Grisham based on a Grisham movie or book? Or uh, Christmas with the Cranks? Christmas with the Cranks. <laughs> That's my favorite. The unlikeliest shit I've ever heard. I should have I should have just said that first. Yeah. Here endeth. What did what did Margotta say? More like <laughs> more like the Pelican Long. <laughs> uh. That seems like a good place to end. Um, thanks again, everybody, for hanging out with us. Uh, be on the lookout for details on the Denzel 
the new detective movie, Little Things. We're going to do a watch party in early February. Um, watch some Pakula movies. If you want to prep for our next podcast, we're doing Clute, Parallax View, and Presumed Innocent. No Ballard. Sir. I'll see you next time. Can't wait. <laughs>